The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We've been doing a, a series, uh, like I just said, we've been doing a series through the books of Samuel and Kings, really big, broad steps, broad brushstrokes, having a look at the, the history of the kings in Israel, the kings in Judah, and, and asking the question, is any of them the Messiah who was promised? Is any of them the Messiah who we see promised kind of throughout the Old Testament? And our search uh, throughout Samuel and Kings looking for this king has been fruitless but not unproductive. Because what these books do is that they point us towards the coming of the Messiah, the true king, King Jesus. And so uh, we're looking at uh, Jeremiah 31 today. And it's, I know it's kind of strange to finish a series in Samuel and Kings in Jeremiah, but we also began this book, this, this, this series in Deuteronomy 17. So it kind of makes sense. We're kind of like finishing it how we started it. We're not, not actually so much in this passage. Um, they're actually, uh, and there's actually been a, a kind of a dual operation within this series. First and foremost, my hope every Sunday is that uh, we would all be edified and encouraged through God's Word by the Gospel, by hearing again and again and again the Gospel of grace, that God came uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. He took God's wrath upon Himself and, and imputed His righteousness to us, His perfect record to us, and, and cause us to, be, to come into that perfect relationship with God the Father. That's, that's the wonderful good news of Jesus, and, and we want to be always edified by that and encouraged by that. The, the second operation in this series has been to give a, a bit of a, a broad overview of the books of Samuel and Kings, because if you can understand at least the, the general narrative of that, if you can understand how to find your way through that, how to navigate through that, then other books, particularly books like the prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the prophets after them, they'll start to make a whole lot more sense when we realize, oh, Jeremiah's talking at this point, Isaiah's talking at this point, Micah's talking at this point, and so on and so forth. Um, at the back, we have again this week more of these um, uh, lists of Israel's kings. Uh, it's just... This is something that I just did for myself. Um, there's a bunch of spelling mistakes, and I noticed that this week. I was going to try and correct them, but ran out of time. And so if you see spelling mistakes, I apologize for that. And there's more that can be added. But if you're reading through the books of Samuel, there's a, there's a bunch of copies down on the back table if you'd like to grab one of them. Um, if you're reading through the books of Samuel and Kings, or if you're reading through the prophets and you're thinking, okay, who is, who is Zephaniah? And, who, and where is he talking to? Then understanding that Zephaniah is talking around the time of Josiah is, is somewhat helpful. You can see where this lands in the, in the entire scheme of the story. So today is the last day in this series, and what we're going to be doing is looking at the list of the kings of Judah in the south. Last week we looked at the kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, and in that situation, uh, the kings beginning with Jeroboam started pretty bad, and then got worse from there. A couple of little hiccups, kind of, it went really bad where they had got a little bit good with Jehu, but then it just went back to the steady decline of, of those kings. And then this week, today, what we're doing is we're looking at the kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. The, this is the kingdom where uh, 
the sons of the kingdom of Judah are the descendants of David, the actual blood descendants of David. This is where Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, was. This is where the the temple is that Solomon built. So it's a, a slightly different kind of focus, slightly different emphasis. And the biggest difference that we'll see between these two kind of lineages of kings or these two kind of histories of kings is that while Israel's kings in the north, Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, went from bad to worse in a steady decline, the kings in the south are kind of all over the place. Like if you were to draw a fairly crude uh, graph, which I've, I've done here, and you can't really tell whether there's, gray, there's some gray lines there you can't tell. But if you were to draw a kind of crude graph basically saying, uh, assessing each king on whether, whether they've been faithful, how much they've obeyed God's law, how much they've been faithful to the covenant, then that's what it would kind of look like for Judah. It's, it's up and down and all over the place. So the plan is today to look at this history and then get to see what God has for us from that. So let's spend a little bit of time in prayer, committing this time to the Lord. Lord, our our desire is to bless you at all times, that your praise would always be on our lips, for you to be our boast, Lord, and to hear your word in humility and be glad. Father, I ask that This morning as I speak, that it would be a proclamation, a faithful proclamation of your greatness. That it would exalt your name. That is my desire, Lord, that you would be exalted and praised and and lifted up above all things. So, Father, we commit this time to you. We dedicate this time to you, asking, Lord, that you would be with us by your Spirit. Lord, where there is any of my own power, words, whatever it is, Lord, anything of my own agenda, would you empty me of that? Fill me with your spirit, Lord, that we would hear your words powerfully from you this morning, God. We lift you up and we exalt you. Cause us to have a greater vision of you, Lord. May we come away this morning being a a, a bit more blown away by your infinite majesty, Lord, and your amazing grace. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Memory is a funny thing. It's a funny thing. It's not consistent. Sometimes we have memories, we have things that we can remember, and they are as fresh as yesterday, even though they happened decades ago. We can remember uh, the various like, intricacies of a certain thing. For instance, uh, when my grandmother turned 60, we went on the Kookaburra Queen in, on the Brisbane River for morning tea, and we had scones with jam and cream. I was about six or seven at the time, and I remember those scones with the jam and cream. I remember watching, making sure that everybody was getting a fair share. Nobody was taking too many so that I could have my, my go at, at seconds. I've got this strange kind of memory of food. Like, I can remember, and this is something that was like of a great novelty to my family growing up, that, uh, that they could talk about an event, someone's wedding, something that happened, and it could be 15 years ago, and I can remember 
what we had to eat that day, what was for dinner, what was served. I've, I just had this memory, and I've, I'm thinking about it this week, I've, I've lost it. I, I can't remember what I had you know, um, for dinner last week. But it is, um, so the, memory's a funny thing, how things just stick with you. Like if I could ask you, if you could always remember something, if there was something in your past that you could always just bring to memory and just be able to like, recall it and just experience that again, what would it be? Or, if I could ask you, if you could forever forget something, if you could forever get to a point where a season, a day, a night could be forgotten for you, what, what would that be? Memory is an interesting thing. There are some things that we find easy to remember and some things that we easily forget. We wreck, our, we wreck our brains when we try to we see that person. We've asked them for their name like four times. It's getting rude now. And we still go, hey, I'm so sorry about you. If I forgot your name. Or we just become real confident. Hey, Tony, how you doing? And then it's Tony, we know, but we just you know, break the ice. It's hard to keep a consistent memory. The Bible teaches us that for those who come to God with the empty hands of faith, who trust in him for their salvation and say, I've, I've got nothing to give. I want to receive your salvation. The Bible t- tells us that God forgives them and forgets their sin. God forgives and forgets. He remembers our sin no more. Now, this is not because God has a bad memory. It's not because uh, he's got some kind of problem with amnesia or selective memory. It's that God will not call our sins to his mind as grounds for our condemnation. For those of us who are in Jesus, when it comes to that day of judgment, it's as if God says, I'm not bringing that up. That's been dealt with. I'm not going to bring that up. I'm not going to recall that to memory. The famous uh, Irish band in the 90s, The Cause, if if any of you remember The Cause, they sang that famous song, You're Forgiven, Not Forgotten. That's not true of God. He, He forgives our sin and he forgets our sin. He remembers it no more. And we we could end that right there. (laughs) We could say, let's pray and let's move on. Um, But I want us this morning to see how it is that that promise comes to us. Because it comes to us, strangely, from the narrative of the people of God's disobedience and faithful, faith, sorry, faithlessness towards him. That God's people are massively unfaithful to him. And God tells them in the midst of that, as, he's, as they're experiencing the consequences for that, I will remember your sins no more. Now, I don't think we can truly understand uh, this narrative of, of, the, of the kings of Judah in the south without first going back to 2 Samuel 7, where God made a covenant with David. If you were here a few weeks ago, we looked at, we looked at David and we said that this covenant is like a big, hefty promise from God to David that God was going to build a house for David. That is, he's going to build a dynasty for him. And as long as David's descendants remained obedient to the Lord, as long as they stayed faithful to the covenant, as long as they walked in the ways of the Lord and remembered his precepts and didn't stray to the left or the right, but were devoted to the Lord wholeheartedly, then there would forever remain a king on the throne of David. One of, one of David's descendants would always remain on the throne. 
And this is what we need to understand about the covenants that we read in the Bible, these hefty promises that God makes. These covenants, they're not a free-for-all, that God comes along and says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, I'm going to do these things for you, I will be your God, you will be my people, and then it's just a free-for-all for his people to do whatever they want. No, his covenant promises expect a response from his people. The covenants are God's initiative in what he will do for the people, and they look for a response from the people. But the people must be obedient. They have to hold up their part of the covenant. So it's this covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel 7 that gives us the reason why, we, and we kind of talked a little bit about this last week, why Judah in the south has a bit more of a happy ending than Israel in the north. If you remember from last week, Israel in the north, uh, the, the kingdom of Assyria, God raised them up because they had been disobedient. God raised up the, the, the kingdom of Assyria to conquer, to besiege, and to destroy Israel in the north. And that was kind of it. They, a bunch remained. They, they became the Samaritans, a mix of people. And then, and then the rest of them were taken off into exile, and that was it. But then when you read the storyline of Judah... The people, the same thing happens. The Babylonians are raised up. They get these smash and destroy Jerusalem and, and Judah. And the people are taken off into captivity, but then they get to return. There's a bit more of a happy ending. And, and we have to understand that through the lens of 2 Samuel 7. See, if you go about looking for reasons in the kings in the south for why Judah was allowed to return from exile, you're not going to find them. The, we don't see that the kings in the, in the south are, are generally better. They, they're all over the place. Some are excellent. Some, I think, rival David for how faithful they were to God. And some were just the worst. They, they were worse than any king in Israel in the north. So if we, if we, go, kind of, if we go looking through it saying, well, Judah was more faithful, I, I don't think we can say that. It's, it's actually that... God's covenant with David, his promises to David, God being faithful to the covenant, that's why we see the storyline of Judah turn that way, they come back from exile. So what I want to do this morning is just walk through quite briefly and quite broadly the narrative of the kings of the southern, king, of, the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, and the reason why we, I want to do this in quite a, a large zoomed out kind of way is just so we can see this narrative, we can see this storyline play out. Because if you're reading through the Bible left to right and you're reading through these books, you might just read a chapter and it's sometimes you can, you can kind of miss the forest for the trees. You can, you can get stuck on one king and that's, that's a good thing to do that. But to zoom out and see all of this come together in the same spot is helpful for us. So that's what we're going to do today. Beginning with Rehoboam, uh, this is uh, Solomon's son. It's, it's a pretty terrible start. The kingdom split after Solomon. Uh, Rehoboam, not only did he, imp- did he impose really horrible conditions on his people, but it also says in 1 Kings 14 that under his leadership, Judah provoked God to more anger than any of their ancestors. They built the high places, sacred pillars and Asherah poles, and there were even male cult prostitutes in the land. They imitated all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had dispossessed before them. They, they, before Israel moved into the land of Canaan, the, the promised land, there was these Canaanites living there. They were, they were not good people. And this is a sobering reality that they were 
the people of God, we're imitating them now. Israel starting to look like it did before Israel moved in. Then Rehoboam's son Abijam, he was not much better, walking in the ways of his father. But then chapter 15 says something quite interesting. First Kings chapter 15, the, the descent is happening. David, Solomon, Rehoboam, then Abijam. And we think, oh, this is, this is going to be it. But it says in verse 4, But for the sake of David... The Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son after him and by preserving Jerusalem. In other words, God did not destroy Judah because of the covenant that he had made with David. Despite the rejection of Rehoboam and by Abijam, God was still being faithful to the covenant. Then we get to Abijam's son Asa, and something changes. Asa did what was right in the Lord's sight, undoing the stuff that his father and his grandfather had done, However, he did not remove the high places. Following Asa, we get Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat got involved with Ahab. If you remember Ahab from last week, Ahab was probably the worst king of Israel, and Jehoshaphat kind of makes a bit of a, a treaty with him. Uh, so that's bad, but he also did what was right in the, Lord's side, in the Lord's side, but again, did not remove the high places. Then Jehoshaphat's son Jehoram, it says that he walked in all the ways, not of his father Jehoshaphat, or not in the ways of David, but in the ways of the kings of Israel. He started becoming like the the kings in the north. He even married King Ahab's daughter Athaliah, which is bad news. These were Baal worshippers. And again here, we, we get, it's descending again, but we get a reminder, for the sake of David... For the sake of his servant David, this is 2 Kings 8.19, the Lord was unwilling to destroy Judah since he had promised to give a lamb to David and his sons forever. Then his son Ahaziah reigned after him, but he was killed after only a year by King Jehu of Israel in the north. After that, Ahaziah's mother, Athaliah, she wanted to be queen. And so she started killing all of Athaliah's, or sorry, Ahaziah's heirs, but she missed one. A young boy named Joash, who was hidden in the temple by his auntie and by the priest for six years. And on the seventh year, they brought him out, they crowned him king, and Athaliah was killed. Joash repaired the temple. It had apparently fallen into disrepute, and he repaired the temple. However, he did not take away the high places. After Joash came Amaziah, who, like his son Uzziah and Uzziah's son Jotham after him, they all did what was right in the Lord's sight. These are, it's a good season. However, the author of Kings says again of each of them, yet the high places were not taken away. Yet the high places were not taken away. Yet the high places were not taken away. And it's at this point we should ask, what are the high places? Why is this such a big deal? From what we can tell, these high places were these local sites of worship where people could come and burn incense and make sacrifices. A bunch had been left behind by the Canaanites. A lot of them had been destroyed, but we know that also some had been made at this point. And so they were famously uh, the places where people would worship false gods. However, as you read through this narrative, you get the idea that it, it isn't strictly too false gods that they were worshipped there. Sometimes God's people did worship Yahweh at these places. And so the, the issue that is with these high places is that they are not only, it's not only idol worship, it's not only worshipping false gods, but when it's worshipping Yahweh, it's unsanctioned worship. 
This is not how God prescribed his people to worship him. He wanted them to come to the temple, to the Holy of Holies. Why? To, sorry, to the, yeah, to the temple to, to, to see this. Why? So they could be reminded this is who God is. He is a God who is holy. He's not a God that we can come to on our own terms. He's a God who we come to on his terms. And Judah's kings should have known this. If we go right back to the very beginning of our series where we started in Deuteronomy 17, it was the law for God's kings, the, the kings of Israel and Judah, to, to write out a copy of the law so they would know they are meant to worship at the temple alone. That's why these high places had to be removed. We then come to Jotham's son Ahaz, and Jotham went in, sorry, Ahaz went in the opposite direction. He reestablished idolatry in the land and became just like the Canaanites who were there beforehand. In fact, Ahaz went so far as to sacrifice his own son to the false god Molech. This is the first time I think we can find an instance of a king of Israel or Judah doing child sacrifice. Let's just let that resonate for a moment. Let's just let that sink in. This is God's people, their kings, performing child sacrifices of their own kings. Additionally, uh, Ahaz got into a bit of a league with the Assyrians who were causing trouble for their kings in the north um, and actually went and, vi- uh, went and visited uh, the king of, of Assyria and saw the, the altar that he had and he liked it. So he got the altar that was in, in front of Solomon's temple. He got that replaced with, this, uh, with a replica of the, of the altar that it was in Damascus. Huge apostasy. His son, however, Hezekiah, was a totally different story. Hezekiah did what was right. He shattered the sacred pillars, he cut down the Asherah poles, and get this, he removed the high places. So for the first time, since David's rule, really, because Solomon built some high places, Israel, for the first time, Israel, Judah was without these high places. It says of him that Hezekiah relied on the Lord God of Israel. Not one of the kings of Judah was like him, either before him or after him. He remained faithful to the Lord and did not turn from following him, but kept the commandments the Lord had commanded Moses. However, in his later years, Hezekiah went through a a tough period, uh, flicking from to fear to pride. And at one stage, he showed off all the riches of his kingdom to a bunch of delegates uh, of an an up-and-coming kingdom called Babylon the same Babylon that would eventually crush Judah. And Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, confronts Hezekiah about this and says, you shouldn't have done this because you've, you've shown your pride, because you've gone and, and shown everything to these people, God will take everything away from you. But not in your generation, it's going to come for your descendants. And then Hezekiah says something quite strange. He says, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not? if there will be peace and security in my lifetime. In other words, Hezekiah has gone, okay, I've done the wrong thing. God's judgment is good, and I'm so glad that it's got nothing to do with me. God's judgment is going to come upon my son and his son, and after that, dodged a bullet there. Seems that Hezekiah forgot the command of God to, to, to train up the children in the ways of the Lord, to teach the children the ways of the Lord. And this became pretty apparent in the next generation. Hezekiah's son Manasseh might just take the crown, I think he does, as the worst king of all time, whether we're talking about Judah or Israel. He 
rebuilt the high places. He reestablished idolatry in the land. More than that, he, he created altars and statues within Solomon's temple so that he could worship the stars in the sky, and he reinstituted the worship of Baal in the land. He practiced witchcraft and divinity, and he even sacrificed his own son in the fire. If you want to read 2 Kings chapter 21, you just get this horrible list of all the things that Manasseh did, and it just goes on and on and on, and it makes your stomach turn. It says in verse 6 that he did a huge amount of evil in the Lord's sight, angering him, and caused God's people to stray so that they did worse evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. So right now, like before it was, they were imitating the, the Canaanites beforehand, but right now they're doing a worse job. They are worse off than the Canaanites who were driven out by Israel. This is historically massive. And as a result, God sent word through the prophets that he was going to bring judgment upon Judah. It says in verse 10, The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Since King Manasseh of Judah has committed all these detestable acts, worse evil than the Amorites who preceded him had done, and by means of his idols has, caused also, has also caused Judah to sin, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I'm about to bring such a disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that everyone who hears about it will shudder. I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line used on Samaria and the mason's level used on the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem clean as one wipes a bowl, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their enemies. They will become plunder and spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have angered me from the day that their ancestors came out of Egypt until today. Massive, massive prophetic word of judgment there. But Manasseh's son Ammon ignored it. When he came to power, he, like his father, did what was evil. But then this gives way to a, a king named Josiah. <clears throat> and the story of Josiah goes like this. After Manasseh and, and, uh, and Ammon um, reigned for about 57 years, the, the priest Hilkiah found a copy of the, Lord's, of, the, of the law in the temple. And he brought it to Josiah and he read it out and, and it, cut, <clears throat> it cut Josiah to the heart. And he tore his clothes and he repented. <clears throat> and they had a read to the whole people. Josiah led Judah in national repentance and, reformed, and, and reform. God was hinged to bring his righteous judgment down upon the people of Judah. But because Josiah humbled himself, the Lord relented. He led Judah in a radical cultural overhaul, bringing Israel, sorry, bringing Israel back to the Lord. Moreover, he commanded the people of Israel, of Judah, sorry, to observe the Passover. And even says in 2 Kings 23:22 that no such Passover had ever, had ever been observed from the time of the judges who judged Israel through the entire time of the kings of Israel and Judah. So by the sounds of it. Not even David had observed Passover, or at least a Passover like this. Which is why I think Josiah comes the closest to rivaling King David in terms of covenant faithfulness to the Lord. It says, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength according to all the law of Moses, and no one like him arose after him. 
But despite this, the Lord did not turn from the fury of his intense burning anger because of Manasseh. He simply delayed it until after Josiah. Following Josiah, there came Jehoaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, all of which were told did what was evil in the Lord's sight. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon marched against Jerusalem. He besieged it and he conquered it. And then he began deporting the leaders, began deporting the soldiers, began deporting the the rich people, the influential people, the the artisans of the people. And he installed Jehoiachin's uncle, Zedekiah, on the throne instead of him. And then Zedekiah, uh, years later, rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar returned to besiege Jerusalem once again for two years. He destroyed the city and he destroyed the temple altogether. And the thing about a siege is that no one can get in and no one can get out. The enemy cuts off the city. People starve, the food runs out, and the city starts falling to bits. People starved. Parents lost their children. Corruption grew unrestrained and criminals ran the city. And the people were taken away from their land, the promised land to a foreign place, many of whom would never return again. It's hard to overestimate just how serious this is. If you're reading the Bible left to right and seeing the overall story of the Bible and just what it took to get to the promised land, how it began with God's promise, God's covenant with Abraham that he would bring him to this land and they would populate and fill it and he would be their God and they would be his people. There would be a light to the nations around them and they would have multiple descendants, more than they could count. And they would go through Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob and then the people of God end up in Egypt and then through Moses they are rescued out of Egypt and taken through the desert and then it's Joshua and Caleb who bring them into this promised land and then we get the battles of Joshua and Judges and how they're trying to hold on to the land and that's when we get Saul and and David where where our series began and it's hundreds of years to get to this land. This land is such an important thing and then just in a few verses, the people were taken away from the land. This is an entire nation that had been founded upon a promise from God and they watched as their nation fell to bits. And the question we ask is, has God's promises failed? Did God's covenant fail here? The answer is no. The people failed, but God's covenant did not fail. And Jeremiah tells us what happens and how this comes about. You see, if you read through the books of Kings and, and, and Samuel and, and even Chronicles as well, you get the history of this. You get this kind of the, the bare facts of it. And you read through and you go, okay, sweet. But then you read Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Oh my goodness, Ezekiel. And it gets graphic. They, they start to give us a bit of insight into what's going on on the ground there. One of these prophets is Jeremiah, who was prophesying before the, the exile of God's people, during the, the, during the siege, and he is the one who, he is one of the prophets who, who commands, the people, he calls the people to come back to covenant faithfulness with God. In the first part of the book of Jeremiah, in the first 25 chapters or so, Jeremiah is rebuking God's people calling them to faithfulness. He laments over their sin and he prophesies about exile and destruction. This is going to come and it does. But then in chapter 26 of Jeremiah, things start to change. He begins to hold out hope for the exiles. 
he begins to talk about receiving God's judgment and going off into exile to seek the peace and the prosperity of the land that they were being taken to because this was not the end of the story. God's promises had not failed. God had a future for his people. God was still going to be faithful to the covenant that he made with his people and with David. And in the midst of these hopeful oracles, we come to Jeremiah 31, which is how I want to finish up. Not just this sermon today, but how I want to finish up this series. Jeremiah 31 details the return from exile. Jeremiah is telling the people, you're going to return. You're going to come back from Babylon. And this is how it's going to play out. God reminds them of his faithfulness. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love and declares that he will bring them back with consolation, with comfort. He will comfort them and bring them back. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. There will be this huge party as they come back. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will give them consolation. I will bring happiness out of grief. And just that line, I will bring happiness out of grief, has just struck me this week. That God reaches into grief and what he pulls out is happiness. This is not a magic trick. This is his faithfulness. This is not a look at the bright side. This is God turning all things around for his glory. This is God being faithful to his covenant that he would bless his people. And then to really bring it home, Jeremiah says in 31.15, he says, this is what the Lord says. A voice was heard in Ramah, a lament with bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Ramah was a staging area about eight kilometers north of Jerusalem. And when the Babylonians dragged God's people away from Jerusalem, they were, they were taken to Ramah to be processed, to be put into chains and to be sent in wherever they were being sent before taking them to, to Babylon. It's, it's, it's possible that Daniel passed through Ramah. It's possible that Esther's parents passed through Ramah. It was this horrible place where the reality of years and years and years of disobedience would come down upon them, a place of unspeakable anguish, chains being put on their hands and feet, families being split up, sometimes never to be seen again. And this reference to Rachel is a reference to the fact that this is God's children who are being grieved here. Rachel is the wife of Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. Jacob is the one whose name was changed to Israel. So this is the children of Israel being lost. And, and Jeremiah points to that place of Ramah. Rachel weeping for her children because they are no more. And Jeremiah says, keep your voice from weeping. This is the Lord's declaration. Your children will return from the enemy's land. There is hope for your future. This is the Lord's declaration. And your children will return to their own territory. God was going to bring happiness out of their grief. This is more than just saying, look on the bright side. This is a solemn promise for God that he will cause death and decay and destruction to start working backwards against itself, and he would restore them. And then in verse 31, we get this promise from God that a new covenant would be made between him and his people. It says, look, the days are coming, 
This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will, will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. I took on, uh, the, on the day, sorry, the, with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Now there's an awful lot to that. There's a couple of things that we need to mention. Firstly, this covenant was different to the previous ones. It had the same desired result. I will be their God, they will be my people. But this time it would be different. This would be a covenant that could not be broken by the people's disobedience. This is not to say that obedience to the covenant could be out of the picture. No, God would write the law in their hearts. This new covenant would would bring the law from the outside written on stone tablets to the inside written on their hearts. And we have a taste of that now, but it points us forward to the new heavens and the new earth where God's people will be with him, seeing him face to face, and we will all know the Lord. And this will all come to fruition. Secondly, it tells us what God will do with disobedience in the new covenant. He says, For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. God's promise is that he will not call our sin to his mind to condemn us. Once our sins have been forgiven by God, he will never again bring them up. This is what true repentance, so this is what true forgiveness is. It's when someone has done something horrible to you, but you say, I'm I'm never going to bring this up again. I'm never going to weaponize this against you. It's done. And this is precisely what we have in Jesus Christ and in nothing else. In Jesus Christ alone is the forgiveness of sins. But how do we know this? How can we say that Jeremiah 31 is about us in this room right now? Like we, we've got to be careful about saying things like that. How can, we, how can we let that apply to us? Well, in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus was born, a really horrible thing happened. King Herod was incredibly threatened by the birth of Jesus, and when he couldn't find the exact location of Jesus, he instead decided to kill all the boys under the age of two in that area. It was horrible, and Matthew wrote, Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. Matthew was saying that Jeremiah's prophecy was only partially fulfilled with the people returning to Judah. The true undoing of sin was due at the birth of Jesus Christ, the true king. The true reversal of death and decay and the true beginning of joy and delight was here in Jesus Christ. Why? For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. It's truly impossible to overstate how serious our sin is. 
It utterly severs our relationship with God and it leaves a path of death and decay and destruction. Sin is truly horrible. There's a playground down the road from us. Um, and there's lots of playgrounds in our area, but this one is the playground that has been adopted by the local teenagers. This is the one that they all go to. And we know that's the case, not only because we see them there, but because this playground is trashed. It's a fairly new playground, and all the equipment is kind of broken. There's always graffiti everywhere. Um, this thing's been destroyed, shopping trolleys shoved into the bushes, all that kind of stuff. And part of us is okay that, as long as they stay there. Well, like, stay in that playground, that's fine. Leave the other playgrounds for the small kids. But I actually ran past it the other day, and this playground was was just trashed. It it kind of reminds you of the the elephant's graveyard in The Lion King, where it's just this, like, haunted place. It just feels horrible. And when you look at the overall narrative of the history of God's people, particularly the kings in Israel and Judah, it looks like sin's playground. Sin has ravaged it and graffitied it, it's been trashed. The history of Israel has been trashed by sin. And the point of it is to make us look into our own hearts and go, oh, what has sin done in my heart? How has sin graffitied my heart? How has sin trashed my heart? The point is not to look at Israel and say, oh, silly Israel, get your act together. The point is to look in our own lives and see that we have been trashed by sin. I don't know about you, but I look at that quite crude graph and I think I could put my name on every one of those dots. There are some days where I have, I feel like I repent really well. <laughs> and there are some days where my sin is so horrible, it's, it's embarrassing. Consider the impact of sin on our hearts. And then let's be pointed to the gospel of grace. That Jesus takes away our sin and remembers it no more. He is not going to bring it to mind. God's not going to call it back up on the day of judgment. He's not going to say, well, actually, there's one that I want to bring out, actually. Yes, Jesus died for your sins. That's really good. But there's this one that you just, it was really bad. Or this is one sin that you just did a lot. Like if you've done it like you know, 18 times, it's fine, but you've done it 1,800 times. So it's like it is, the cross is just not enough for that. No, that's not going to happen. It's been dealt with on the cross. We looked at the beginning of Jesus' life with Herod, and now let's go to the end. The night before Jesus was killed, he took his last supper with his disciples. In Matthew, in Matthew 26, it says that as they were eating, Jesus took bread blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink it all, sorry, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant that Jesus was making. I will be your God. You will be my people. Same as before. But the stipulations this time were of grace. The new covenant is perfectly fulfilled by God and perfectly fulfilled on our behalf by Jesus Jesus Christ and his perfect obedience on our behalf. God's promise to us of having him and knowing him for eternity 
It's not dependent on our obedience to him, but entirely dependent on his obedience, on Jesus Christ's obedience to God on our behalf and our faith in that, in him. Do you see this? Your good works don't count here. Your morality is not considered. Your history has no currency here. Why? I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Jesus paid the ultimate price that our sin could be forgiven. And then for us to have what we were always meant to have, what we were designed to have, union with God. He gave to us what we did not deserve. We read that this morning in Psalm 103. He will not accuse us or be angry with us forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. It went on to Jesus. Our sins went on to Jesus. He's paid for them. And when we get this, it doesn't become a free-for-all pass for us to do whatever we want. It becomes the opposite. The kindness that we discover in, in the grace of Jesus Christ makes us go, oh, Lord, I want to repent of my sins and follow you. It leads us in repentance and increasingly limitless pursuit of glad holiness. But we still might not get this. We might still yawn at this. We might find it hard to believe. Like maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, I I hear this, I get this, I'm very glad that God has forgotten my sin, but I still remember it. I still remember what I did, and that's still a stain on my heart. If that's the case for you, it's probably the case that you're your biggest condemner. But your sense of justice and rightness is not higher than God's. He is the greater judge. He has acquitted you if your faith is in Jesus. He is the just and the justifier. To have faith means to believe and receive and accept that what he has said about you in Jesus Christ has a far greater bearing on you than what you can say about yourself. Who are you to condemn someone that God has justified, even and especially if that's yourself? Maybe we need to repent of our half-hearted repentance. What if what God has said about you became a louder voice in your mind and heart, your meditations, than what you say about you? What if, what if that was actually, we, what if we heard God on this, that he, when he says, I will remember your sins no more, what, if, what would the rest of today look like if we just genuinely believe that? If that just just dropped to the next level in our hearts, just sunk a bit deeper. Like the, the floor that that's sitting on, that, that heavy weight is sitting on, cracked this morning, and it just that anvil just dropped to the next level, hopefully busting through that level as well. Like what if we just let the anvil of grace just drop f- through a few more floors deeper and deeper into our hearts and, and remember that God will not remember our sins. He will not cause them. He will not call them up to his remembrance in order to condemn us. 
Let me finish by reading to you the first couple of verses of Psalm 32. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 